Welcome to episode 371. We're going to talk about heartbreak with Dr. Guy Winch. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. You know that great idea you've had in the back of your head? Well, it's time to turn that into a unique website, whether it's a blog or some type of work you do, publish content, even selling products or services. You can do it in a few clicks, customize everything just how you want it. Beautiful templates by world-class designers, nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. My name is Paul Gilmartin. The name of this here podcast is The Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles that we have in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, sexual dysfunction to everyday simple negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Oh, God, no. Oh, I'm not a professional. I'm barely a human being. <laughs> Let's see, a uh, minute and 18 seconds in and I have shat on myself already. That's actually a little long. I, I held it off probably for a good minute, more than I felt like I should have been uh, pouncing on myself. Um, welcome to any uh, new listeners that are coming to us from uh, uh, that featured spot on iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts, I should, uh, I should say. Um, what do I want to tell you? Uh, you know what, L let me read a couple of, uh, oh, I know what I want to say. For those of you that are new to the podcast, my brain is working very slow. I think I missed uh, a dose of my medication, but I'm not sure. And uh, I've been sick. You could probably still hear it uh, for the last couple of days. So I haven't, uh, I just haven't done anything that's good for me. I haven't exercised. I haven't meditated. Um, but I haven't sat and obsessed about myself. So hopefully that that burns some calories. But this show is part interview, part uh, listener confessions via the surveys that people fill out uh, on our website anonymously. And our website is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter and Instagram handle that you can uh, follow me at. Uh, so this is from one of our uh, more popular surveys, a uh, survey called uh, Your Struggle in a Sentence. This is filled up by Yasmin, and she writes about her depression, like I'm coming down from MDMA every day. Uh, that is actually very similar scientifically. Uh, the the way the brain, <laughs> the way my brain is working right now. Uh, yeah, because you squirt out all that dopamine uh, when you're high. And then the next day, uh, your bank account is empty, uh, the bank account being in your brain. Uh, about her sex addiction, I have to fuck you so good that you never leave me so I never have to sleep alone. And then a snapshot from her life that highlights her issues. I'm too afraid to let my boyfriend in on abandonment issues because I'm afraid he'll leave. And I also know that the problems that will cause will be the reason our relationship someday ends. Thank you for that. Yeah, what a fucking catch-22. Um, borderline anorexic writes about her uh, anxiety. Um, will they write 
the girl who said thighs instead of ties on my grave? Question mark. Oh my God, the the obsessing over past mistakes, that is one of the worst wastes of time. That and going to see a movie by Michael Bay. Those two have to be the biggest waste of time ever. I don't normally shit on people on the podcast, um, but I really don't like his movies. Uh, about her anger issues. Being angry, but knowing that I'm the only person I should be angry at. You know, I wanted to read this. Um, she's a teenager, and I wanted to read this because, no, you shouldn't be angry um, at yourself. There, First of all, there's no shoulds in terms of our feelings. Um, we feel what we feel, and judging what we feel is is uh, does not help anything. It's our actions that we should focus on. And there's a difference between being angry at yourself uh, in a cycle of unhealthy shame and reflecting on something that you might improve upon uh, in the future if this situation presents itself again. Uh, Learning from a mistake as opposed to shaming yourself for a mistake. This is filled out by Black Cat's Rule, and she writes, um, her issues are depression, anxiety, bulimia, and living with an abusive person, and a snapshot from her life that highlights her issues. I remember walking down the sidewalk at my college on my way to class from a session with my therapist, looking up and thinking, that looks like a tall enough building to jump off. Thank you for that. It's... It's crazy. It, since I started doing this show, um, my relationship to what I think about when I look at bridges is so much different than it used to be because I'm, that was never a fantasy that, that I had, I suppose, because I've never lived, uh, really close to water. But, um, I, I was in, I think it was Portland and, uh, and I realized, boy, I have been thinking every time I look at a bridge that somebody has taken their life off of that thing. And I almost forgot that it can also be used to connect two points of land. Who knew? Uh, Alistair writes about his uh, skin picking. It feels like driving a car without brakes. That's such a good one. I'm not a skin picker, but... Addiction is, yeah. Although I don't know if that's a, that's a compulsive behavior, not necessarily an addiction. Uh, about his autism, it feels like the intensity dials for all my physical senses and emotional states were turned all the way up and they are just stuck that way forever. About his gender dysphoria, uh, and uh, he is transmasculine. Uh, he writes, feels like what I imagine phantom limb is like. I can tell that parts of my body are missing, but they were simply never there in the first place. If you haven't listened to the episode with uh, Lauren Hennessy, uh, you should. That's um, a really, really great episode, and Lauren is a, a trans man, and just an all-around great interview, and yeah, check it out. 
same survey filled out by intrusive apartment for rent. And, uh, she describes her intrusive thoughts. Like my mind is a space for rent for other people's problems with me that are really only mine. And although there's no vacancy, I can't seem to take down the for rent sign. It's, what is it that they say about resentments is, uh, letting other people rent, rent space in your head. Hannah uh, shares a happy moment with us. Uh, she writes, I went to a Whole Foods on my way home today to pick up the random hippie bullshit I need. <laughs> I think that would be a great name for a store, random hippie bullshit. You would know what you're getting. You just walk in, you're like, all right, where's the granola? Uh, where's the, uh, the kombucha? <laughs> the kombucha pudding? Um and uh, I went to pick up all the random hippie bullshit I need and normally hate this Whole Foods because it has tall, narrow aisles, a small parking lot, and was very busy. It's always very busy. Um, and there, first of all, there's no way it could be smaller than a Trader Joe's parking lot. Trader Joe's parking lots can actually double as a girdle. If you, if you know the right people, uh, of course everything is a nickel at Trader Joe's. It's a postage stamp. I get anxiety just thinking about going to Trader Joe's and trying to find a parking space. Uh, continuing. Every time I've gone here, I am super anxious and I'm afraid of bumping into folks and getting in their way. But today, as I bobbed and weaved through all types of folks, I felt decent, okay, and even found myself laughing at times, like when things accidentally fell off the shelf and when having difficulties finding the spice aisle. For a moment, I was in the present moment, and even though I was doing an errand, I felt okay and pretty content and even maybe happy. I so love moments like this because this, to me, is the bulk of life. And if we can make peace with the present moment, it's like that's 90% of life is is not judging the moment, just saying, how can I react to this in a way that's principled? How can I recognize what I have control over and what I don't have control over? And, uh, yeah. Uh, this is an awful some moment filled out by X A C A B A X Cabafab X. I don't know what the fuck that means but I've got a resentment of them already. They're already running space in my head. Uh, they are agender, and they write, I cut my dad off a few years ago, and this past Christmas, my mother decided I needed to, quote, make it right. So she asked me to meet up and talk. I hadn't seen her in several years because they are missionaries. Anyway, we meet up at a busy Starbucks, her choice, where she grills me about my dad, and I tell her that he sexually abused me. She insisted that we do this there. So, there it is. She goes on to explain to me that the devil can insert false memories to destroy the family unit and that she and I are in a spiritual war. She points to her chest and says, Good. Then to me and says, Evil. Back at herself, Jesus. To me, Satan. I look her dead in the eyes and say, everything in you, your survival, 
is fully invested in not believing me. I know what happened. These are not false memories. When shit hits the fan in a few decades, I hope you can look back on this and see the truth in this. But this, this shit right here, I am never doing this again. A woman with some sort of liberal feminist sticker on her computer lifted her Starbucks cup to me in agreement, and my mom told me I was yelling. Whoops. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. The healing that can take place when we stop rolling over because we don't want to make a stand with people that are toxic in our lives. The empowerment. I, I, I can't even imagine how fucking empowered this person felt after they walked away from that. Probably sad as well, but right on, man. Right on. And uh, if how's this for a segue? If you want to find out how to empower yourself and do some inner work, well, then how about using one of our sponsors, BetterHelp.com? I'm a big fan of BetterHelp.com. I've been using them for a year and a half, and um, I didn't know what to expect with online therapy, but I am I'm a total fan. I talk once a week um, to Donna, my therapist, and she is just a super highly qualified, experienced, wonderful woman who gets me and is compassionate and um, has really helped me uh, gain a lot of insight into the things that uh, that I struggle with. So if you guys want to check out BetterHelp.com, uh, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental, complete a questionnaire, and then you'll get matched with a BetterHelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, online counseling is right for you, and you need to be over 18. And once again, that's BetterHelp.com slash mental, and make sure you Include the slash mental so they know that you came from our show. We are also sponsored today by SeatGeek, which is a really cool app uh, to buy tickets. And one of the things that I really like about it, I used it to buy uh, some tickets for Paul Simon, uh, who's coming to the Hollywood Bowl. Very excited about that. And I wasn't really sure where to sit there. And one of the things that the app has is you can filter by a bunch of different things. And I filtered by a cool thing they have, which is called uh, seat value. I think that's the name of it. But essentially, how big of a uh, of a discount you're getting on a ticket that is for sale. And uh, that's what I used. And I found a couple of tickets I'm super excited about. And uh, you ought to check it out. Make Seat Geek your go-to app for finding the best deals in every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Uh, and you guys, the listeners, get 20 bucks off your first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code MENTAL today. That's promo code MENTAL for 20 bucks off your first SeatGeek purchase. All right. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Puke Pity. And she writes uh, about her OCD. Uh, I'll sleep in my sister's room so I don't ruin my perfectly made bed. 
And then a snapshot for her issues are depression, anxiety, alcoholism, bulimia, anorexia, and codependency, and OCD. And a snapshot from her life, she writes, I can do anything, and I'm amazing. I'm going to accomplish everything. But first, I have to wait for my sister to leave so I can puke up everything I just binged. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get. You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Guy Winch, who has been a guest before, and uh, the listeners love you. Your many episodes on uh, issues like grief, uh, rumination, anxiety, uh, people found really, really helpful. Uh, And we're going to talk about heartbreak, both romantic and losing a pet. I'm so glad that you touch on that in this this new book you have. It's called How to Fix a Broken Heart. And when does it come out? It comes out February 13th. February 13th. Um, it's such a helpful book. Um, give us kind of an overview uh, of it. So I wanted to write a book about heartbreak, but I wanted to write a book about the kind of heartbreak that we typically dismiss, that we typically ignore. When somebody gets divorced, everyone's like, oh, you're getting divorced. We're so sorry. Your boss is at work. We'll acknowledge that that's an issue. Do you need some time? Or we understand why you're not maybe performing as best as you can. But if you're not married, if you're just in a relationship, even if it's a very significant one, and that breaks up, and you go in and say, my girlfriend broke up with me, then the boss is going to look at you like, "Uh, well, grow up. You know, just get over it. And it's a similar thing with pet loss. Um, We can become incredibly attached to our pets. They become members of our family. They can be primary companions for people. And losing a pet, cats can live to 20-something years, dogs to, you know, like into the 15 years, what have you. They can be really significant parts of our lives. And when we lose them, the assumption is we'll just get over it. It's an animal. Um, But they can what people experience is significant, significant grief, both about a relationship breaking up and about pet loss. And so I wanted to write a book about, A, these are really significant life events. We experience significant grief as a result, and yet we don't acknowledge as a society that these are important, meaningful losses that warrant, um, that warrant discussion, that warrant support, that warrant recovery. And um, so I wanted to write a book about, A, what the science says about these things, and B, how they impact us and what we can do about it. 
let's start off by you reading the uh, thing about uh, Ben. So the um, this patient I write about in the book, um, I call him Ben. Um, all the names, of course, of patients, and in this case of animals, have been changed um, <laughs> <laughs> to protect uh, the privacy of people. Um, ben I had met initially when he... Uh, uh, he lost both his parents within a year, and he came uh, to me to, to work through some of that. And this happened um, seven years later. And uh, I got an email from him. And now I'll read from the book. The email said, I need to see you again, but you're going to think it's silly because it's about Bova. Bova was his dog. I know it's ridiculous to go to therapy to talk about a dog, but he's really sick, and you need to talk about it. I know it sounds stupid, and I feel embarrassed to ask, but please let me know if it's okay to make an appointment ASAP. My heart pinched as I read Ben's words. I remembered both him and Bova well. Ben worked from home and was alone in his apartment all day, so he had decided to get a dog for companionship soon after his divorce. He adopted a rescue pup he named Bova, an adorable Labrador and Golden Retriever mix. Bova was Ben's first dog, and he was totally smitten with him from day one. He devoted hours to playing with his new puppy and training him to do simple tricks. He proudly walked him around the neighborhood, and Bova, who was a ham even by dog standards, accrued fans and admirers everywhere. Even people who knew Ben previously began referring to him as Bova's dad. When Ben's parents first got sick, Ben took Bova with him whenever he visited them. When they were hospitalized, he asked their neighbors to watch Bova while he spent hours at their bedside, just to be able to have Bova with him on the drive back and forth. Ben also received support from his boss, who was considerate and understanding. He gave Ben time off to care for his parents as their conditions worsened, and to grieve for them when they died. I would like to think therapy was the vital ingredient that helped Ben get through his parents' death, but it was not. What truly kept him going during that dark period was Bova. He sleeps with me in the bed at night, Ben told me in our first session. He sits by me when I work. Yesterday, I was watching TV and thinking about my dad, and I guess I started to cry. I didn't even notice I had tears on my cheek until Bova came over and began licking my hand. I swear he can tell when I'm sad. He's the most amazing dog. Bova was. Ben would often bring him to our sessions where he would lie at the foot of the couch, his head resting on Ben's foot. Truly attuned to Ben's mood and emotional distress, when Ben teared up or cried, Bova would sit up and lick his hand or rest his head on Ben's knee. The bond between them was powerful and undeniable. With Bova's health failing, I could only imagine how distraught Ben must be. I met with Ben the next day. He came alone. Almost fifteen years old now, Bova was deaf and almost entirely blind, and he often became anxious and restless in unfamiliar places. Since I had moved offices since I last saw Ben, he thought it best to leave Bova at home. Ben was extremely upset during our session, and I comforted him as best I could. We set up another time to meet the following week. But Bova's health deteriorated rapidly, and Ben had to take him to the vet the next day. Bova rallied at first, but then he declined again a few days later. 
the vet determined he required surgery. Ben had already used his personal days and most of his vacation days to care for Bova over multiple health emergencies and vet visits. He used his last vacation day to stay by Bova's side as he recovered at home after the surgery. The next morning, Bova slept into a coma. Out of both personal and vacation days, Ben called in sick to work so he could rush Bova back to the vet. His boss called him on the cell phone a few hours later after Ben didn't answer his landline. Ben admitted he was at the veterinary hospital and explained that his dog was very sick. His boss was furious. He insisted Ben get back to work immediately so he could meet an important deadline. Ben had no choice. He left Bova at the veterinary hospital and went home to finish his work. That afternoon, the vet called. Bova was failing rapidly. Ignoring the consequences of leaving his assignment incomplete, Ben rushed to his dog's side. When he arrived at the vet's, Bova was unconscious and breathing shallowly. Ben reached over and softly stroked his dog's head, tears streaking down his cheeks. And then something amazing happened, Ben told me when we met the following evening. Bova's eyes never opened when I touched him, so I put my hand near his nose so he could smell that it was me, and he licked my hand. Ben collapsed into sobs. He knew I was crying, and he licked my hand, just like he always did. He licked my hand, and then he died. Although I often feel deeply sad when working with a patient whose heart is broken, I'm rarely moved to tears. But Ben's description of Bova's last moments had me lunging for the tissue box. The enormity of Ben's loss was apparent. Bova's faithful companionship had eased Ben's loneliness after his divorce. His, lo his loyal devotion had comforted Ben when his parents died, and his playful and exuberant presence had been Ben's emotional anchor for the past fifteen years. Ben's heart was absolutely shattered but he was given no time to grieve. I, did, I didn't think I was going to cry again hearing this. Talk, talk some, fill the, fill the silence for fuck's sake, guy. Okay, I will. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm giving I, you, I'm giving you a moment. But I yes, know. I, I will. I know. I, I, it's, I, you know, I just read this many, many times. Otherwise I would be right with you yes. when I wrote it, when I read it the first few times, it, it took me back to that moment. And when you see somebody so devastated and when you understand the devastation, because this guy, Ben, over was his life. It, it, he literally, he didn't have a relationship. He, Bova was his life. He took the dog to the dog run. He would talk to people there. He was known as Bova's dad in the neighborhood, as I said. And it was, you know, he would, you know, work from home. But he, at the end of the day, he took him out for these long walks in the New York City winters even. And losing him left him so alone and left him so bereft. And... It is bad enough to deal with if that were the only situation. But this boss, which had been so supportive when his parents died, did not get it. And there's a line further on, you know, when I describe this about how he 
responded to him and he was so dismissive he literally thought ben was being ridiculous and childish and silly and 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 all of that and so there was no support there he was literally given no time to grieve he had to go back and finish that assignment and then he had to keep working the next day when his heart was shattered now what i say about this is that you can force somebody to sit in a chair at a computer and do their work you can't force them to function and ben wasn't functioning he wasn't he was heartbroken so he was able to tap out some lines here and some things there but there's this unreality this unrealistic expectation we have that if we think somebody shouldn't be in pain then they shouldn't be and if we think they should just be able to put that aside and dismiss it they should be able to put it aside and dismiss it and that's just not reality it's just absolutely unrealistic it's it's false as an assumption you might not agree that the person is broken hearted or should be but if they are you have to accept that they are and the best you can do is help them move forward as much as possible rather than penalize them for the loss that they're already suffering and ben was penalized he truly almost lost his job and i have to say when i when i wrote this book there were many you know when when you write a book like this as a psychologist you want to choose a few people that i've worked with right that i can talk about i've worked with many i've been practicing for 25 years i could choose many people who lost pets i could choose many people who were heartbroken i wanted to choose the ones that illustrated something that was actually really common that when pets die in this case when i'm talking about pets there were very few examples in which people got the support they needed even the people who were oh i'm so sorry after a week it's like oh no you should be over this now and it's not people's experience they don't get over it after a week they don't get over it after a long time and there's a way in which we until we're in the situation don't get it and we need to get it because this is profound for many 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 people and it was important for me to bring this story particularly because there was a comparison there between losing his two parents and losing his dog he was more affected by the loss of the dog because his parents as much as he loved them lived far away he didn't see them that often he didn't even speak to them every day they were not part of his daily life he didn't wake up in the morning look out and feel their absence so it was hard for him when his parents died it was fundamentally and significantly harder when bova died and that comparison of yes he mourned the dog he grieved the dog more than his own parents is not a testament of him being a a a you know a, a, something wrong with him or being a shallow person it's a testament to the bond that we have with these animals and the fact that the boss was so compact he was super compact that's why ben was so surprised like wow this guy was so supportive when my parents died and he is being horrific but there was no explaining it this was a guy who didn't get it and he didn't get it he just didn't and to me when he wrote that email i started with reading his email before bova died and he said you're going to think it's silly because part of him thought it was silly even though he was feeling so panicked that his dog is is failing he part of him thought but this is silly I'm an adult. This is an animal. I shouldn't have these feelings. And I don't know where we get that, but of course we should have these feelings. When somebody is so important to us and such an integral part of our daily lives, we come home, there is no human that's going to greet us with that kind of delight on a regular basis. Inconsistency. <laughs> yes.
And we can actually leave for 10 minutes to go to the corner and come back, and it'll be the same excitement all over again. We do not get that from a human being. We, we form profound bonds with our pets. And yet when we lose them, there's just limited recognition of how profound that can be. Is it for everyone? No. Is it like that? But for many people, it is. So many uh, times I read surveys where people say that the only thing keeping them alive is their pet. Mm. Yes. Yes. And for, some, and for many people, look, I live in New York. It's one of those big cities where you can get very, very lost. And over the years, I've had many patients who were extraordinarily lonely. Um, they just didn't have a close cadre of friends for what, all kinds of different reasons. They just weren't that connected to a lot of people. But they had animals that they considered family. They considered family in that even their friends would bring the animals Christmas presents because why would you not bring that member of the family a, a Christmas present? You know, and, 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 you can, and sometimes this animal was 90% of their social interaction. 90% of the source of emotional support and love and affection and companionship. So when that goes, it is profound. I've been feeling silly lately. I shared with Guy before we started recording that I lost one of my uh, dogs uh, almost a year ago, about nine months ago. And I expected to be sad for three, six months Um but I'm still crying. I can't put up pictures of him because I feel it in my heart. And you talk in the book about how people make, I don't know, I hate to use the word mistakes, but common ways that they fail themselves in dealing with the loss of a pet and the, and the heartbreak and some ways that might help them. Uh, can, you, can you talk about those? Yes, but let me say as, as a principle. So how do we measure whether we are processing grief, recovering, moving through it? How do we know whether we are progressing in our work of the grief or not? And really the, the main... Uh, uh, the main measure that I use is, um, are you feeling better in month five than you did in month two? Are you thinking less about the loss in month five than month two? Are you, is it preoccupying you less? Is it, when you think about it, is the ache that you have not a 10 on the scale of one to 10, but a seven perhaps? And when grief work happens correctly, there should be a gradual diminishing of the emotional pain, of intrusive thoughts, of the crying episodes, of how much it preoccupies you, of how much it impairs your functioning. Um, all those things should be gradually getting better. When they don't, or when they progress a bit and stall, and I'm not suggesting you're, mm -hmm. you are stalled for still being sad that many months later, because it depends on the, on the meaning of the loss. Um, but is there a progression of getting better, even if it's slow? Is there continual movement? And if there is, okay. If there is not, that's when things might be problematic. The thing is, because we don't talk about this, because we don't have a dialogue, because we think it's silly, 
we don't actually know what are the things we should do, what are the things we shouldn't do. So, for example, um, some people, you said that you have trouble putting up pictures. It's one of those things that can operate differently for different people. For some people, keeping pictures up keeps them stuck and they need to at some point get rid of the pictures. For some people, they get rid of the pictures right away, but they want to bring them back when they're feeling better, perhaps in the, like in your situation, but it's a long time till they do. Should they then put up the pictures and just deal with it or not? And there's no right answer per se. You have to know what works for you, what sets you back. The mistakes we make is not looking at our progression not our progression, not looking at whether we are getting better, whether we are healing as, a, as the measure of are we doing the right thing, do we need to do something differently. With pet loss, for example, um, or with this guy Ben, for example, there were a lot of voids that were created when his dog died. He no longer went to the dog run. That was a big source of socialization for him. He worked from home. There was no office, there were no people. It was just him isolated in the apartment. Three or four times a day, he took Bover out. It got him to interact with people in the neighborhood. Everyone stopped him to pat the dog. The dog was adorable. In the dog run, he was chatting with the regular people. All that went away. Now, when that goes away, psychologically, voids have to be filled. You can't just allow it to, okay, now I don't have that. No, but it has to be replaced. You have to fill that void. With for him, it was, how is your socializing going to work now? Who are you going to see? If you stay in the apartment where you're working from home all day and then stay there all evening, you're completely isolated. So he needs video games and ice cream. No, because the video <laughs> games... He needs video games if he were playing with someone alongside somebody. Right. In other words, he needs... you know, and if That would put him in touch with people. Terrific. But he became extraordinarily isolated as a result. And that's a common thing you wrote uh, that people It's do. a common thing that we don't fill voids. And we think we should just be okay without them because, well, the dog died, so there's nothing I can do. No, there's a lot you need to do. Or, or we fill voids with things that are numbing instead of nurturing. Well, ice cream and video games, yeah. for example. Alcohol, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we, my ex and I, uh, we had two dogs. Herbert died in, in May of last year. Um, and Ivy is... Uh, 14 and a half wow. right now and I go and let her out uh, every weekday when my ex is working and I feel such sadness every time I go there and um, it just she, she's not even dead yet her name's Ivy and she's not even dead yet and I feel this like gray sense and I did with Herbert too as their mortality uh, ends or gets near its end, that I'm somehow failing them, even though I can't think of any particular thing. Can you talk about that? Yes, it's very common with pet loss to feel significant guilt um, after the pet dies, um, regardless of the circumstance. Obviously, certain circumstances are going to warrant it uh, more, um, animals can't express that they're in distress. And with um, dogs, for example, they're going to wag their tail when they see you, even if they're in pain. Um, it, it's very difficult to tell. And so you can tell when something is very, very obviously 
wrong. If this were a human, they would alert you that they're in discomfort or pain or something's not right way before. So we often catch things with animals really, really late because we, they're not alerting us and we can't tell. And there's always a, could I have done more? Um, animals often, we don't know when they're about to go. In this case, Bova was at the vet who alerted Ben to come. But if Bova had been home, Ben would have shown up and Bova would have been dead and he would have felt even worse that he wasn't there for it. How could he have been? It, it, it's a, and, and that happens all the time, that they slip quietly away um, or the ones that die because of an accident and we think, oh, if I only held the leash a little bit tighter or if I knew that. Or I, I cannot imagine what that is like. I cannot imagine. It's, it's terrible and it's traumatic. And with cats, you know, cats, you know, I left the door open and the cat ran away and, and um, why did I do that? And, oh, I didn't know they were allergic to this. And, I, and so there's a lot of guilt sometimes we have with animals. And, and what I always say to people in that situation is, um, because it's the people who are feeling the guilt most who tend to be the most devoted owners, right? They tend to be extremely devoted extremely loving, and they tend to give their animals an amazing life. Um, and I, I think it's important to focus on that, that um, don't reduce your interaction and your experience to the last hour, the last day, the last week, whatever it was. Look at what you, look at the life you gave your, your pet. I put them both through college, which I think is I huge. Think, I think that's a financial and emotional investment, which is significant. But I feel such guilt that I didn't pay for their master's. I feel like I let them down. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they, they were disappointed by that. But, but truly, in other words, we, you know, I, I've, I don't know if you've seen, but I sometimes see pet owners who, who don't know how to treat their animals well and who don't treat their animals well and who neglect the animals. And, and you know, rescue dogs are rescue dogs because somebody needed to rescue them from the previous owner specifically, right? Um, and then you have to compare what you're giving to what's the best life that animal could have had? Probably the one you gave it. And therefore, guilt should be the last thing that you should be feeling. Loss, for sure. Grief, for sure. So try to focus on what you did give them. Yes. Essentially. That you gave them an amazing life. And that because of the limitations, you can't read their mind, predict, mm -hmm. and whether they would have died that when you weren't home or when you were home, you might have been able to say more of a goodbye. But essentially... They lived an amazing life because of you. That, they, that I, I can agree when I stop and think about it because they were, uh, well, uh, Ivy's still alive, but they're both rescues. And um, I know definitely that they, that they had good lives. It, one of the things that hurt so much, uh, Herbert uh, is the one that died, and he used to do this thing when he would get excited in the backyard. He would, when he would jump up to the porch from the, from the grass, uh, it was only, you know, the, the porch was maybe three inches high, but he would jump like three feet high <laughs> and extend like, like he was going over a hurdle. Yeah, like a and, gazelle kind of thing. Yeah, and we called it Superman uh, because his he would stick his oh, right, 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 front legs Superman way pose. out and right. his back legs way out, and it was an expression of his just joy. Yeah. And when I think about that, it it hurts so much. That, that 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 is gone. Do you think there's a part of us that also mourns 
maybe injuries that we had in our lives previously, things that, um, you know, maybe we transfer stuff uh, from our lives onto our relationships with our dogs. And the reason I asked this is one night I started crying about Herbert and a lot of times when I cry, I'll, I'll talk to him as if he's here. And I suddenly realized that a lot of what I was saying are things that I would have loved to have gotten in a time machine and go back and tell myself when I was at the worst parts of my childhood. Oh. Is, is that something that you see or is that just uh, me uh, <laughs> thinking about myself too much? <laughs> I, it's something you see in grief. Yeah. Because grief brings up a lot of introspection. It sends you back to all kinds of different moments in your life. Some people visit the happy moments, some people the sad moments, some people happy moments that aren't related, sad moments that aren't related. It just evokes such strong emotion that our brain then associates to that emotion in all kinds of ways. And it then always comes back to the present loss, which is the grief work about about the pet in this case. Um, so it just, grief in general does that. It evokes a lot. But, but let's just look at Herbert, for example. So 15 he was? How old was he? Uh, 14. 14. 13, 14. 13, 14. So you had him for many, many years. And you were with your ex for a lot of those years. Now you aren't. So he symbolizes not just his relationship with you, your relationship with him, but times with your ex, different moments and adventures in your life, happier times, sadder times. The associations you have to the span of time uh, brings up a lot of dramatic moments, positive, negative, of all kinds. All those get stirred up in our, in our grief processing work. And that's in part why we have to take this so seriously, because it's not just about the dog dying or the cat dying or the horse dying. It's, it's about everything they symbolized, everything that we were associating with them, everything that we tended to, those periods in our life, those chapters that now close and we started a new one or we haven't, but, but that one is closed and we have to mourn the ending of that period. And sometimes people, that period isn't associated with a negative with a sad period, but it's still an ending of something that we mourn. So it evokes a lot. You know, one of the things that, that I uh, struggled with, particularly in the beginning when I split with my ex, was the inability to let them know why I'm not there. Mm. I know. And that's, that's with dogs and toddlers, essentially, because yeah. even three-year-olds can have some comprehension about, you know, daddy's going mm -hmm. away, but he loves you, but he'll only be back on weekends. Dogs don't understand that. The one thing I can tell you to comfort you is that dogs' attention span is very, very limited. So um, they are not very reflective animals, neither are cats. They are unlikely to sit around going, huh, I haven't seen him <laughs> for a while. I wonder what's going on. Um, what's not in front of them, they're not really thinking about all that much. However, when you walk in, they will be thrilled to see you. Yeah. Um, and in that moment, I don't know dog psychology enough to know if that thought is like, oh yeah, you haven't been around, where have you been? In that moment, perhaps. But it's less likely to happen five hours after you left. Yeah. 
Do you know, do you know what I mean? So what you're saying is I'm not interesting? To dogs in your absence. <laughs> your absence is not interesting. You are so good at not denying my humor. <laughs> But staying a therapist in that moment. You're so I'm good here at on it. duty. I'm here on duty. You're so good at it. Um, one last thing about the, the pet thing, uh, and you wrote about this in the book, is I am terrified. I long so much to get another dog, but I am terrified of being open to this kind of hurt again. And that is the most common feeling to have. Um, there's the, I'm terrified to opening myself up to this again. Um, it feels extraordinarily disloyal. If I do attach to this new animal, does it mean I didn't love Herbert enough or Ivy enough? Or does it mean I don't care about them? Um, and these are the thoughts people have. Um, when you get a new dog, you will find that you can have as much fondness and love for Herbert and his memory. It will not prevent you from attaching to the new dog. Just like when people have a second child, they don't stop loving the first. Um, it is curative to get another dog. It is helpful. So uh, what you're saying is the ghost of Herbert won't spite me? No. And, okay. and, and you will find, I mean, you're a dog lover. You, you won't be able to resist the new dog. You will fall for the new dog quickly. Yeah. And, it, and it, we're talking about filling voids that pets are something we can, when we'll talk about heartbreak in a minute, of romantic heartbreak, it is much easier to get a new pet than it is to get a new significant other. Yeah. That selection process goes, is much more one-sided and, and yeah. easier. <laughs> yeah. And we should avail ourselves of it because if you really love animals, um, get another one. Rescue another animal. There are many need to be rescued. Um, it's not disloyal. Uh, and it will, will it hurt when that animal eventually dies? Yes. Is it worth the 15 years you might have of, of joy with them? Yes, it's worth it. The other thing that, that I noticed is uh, we had a dog previous to uh, Herbert and Ivy, and we had that dog for uh, 14 years, and it was a dog we found on a highway when wow. it was like a year old. And that's her a name real, was That's Carmen. a real rescue situation. Real rescue. Uh, it was so funny. The moment we found her, she didn't really know where she was going, and it was this desolate highway. And we pulled the car over and we called her to try to come to us. And she turned to us and then she turned the other way and looked at this almost cartoon-like stretch of highway <laughs> into nothing. And you could see the yeah. wheels turning mm, and then she yeah. came to us. What should I and, do here? That doesn't yes. look so great over there. Yeah. Let's risk it. Yeah, but um, it, as painful as it was, it seems like it was less painful because I was living with someone then and we got ivy within three months of of charlie and it it didn't feel like we were saying oh you know we can't live with this anymore it just felt like okay you know now is the right time but i i didn't have that fear of uh it wasn't as intense the fear that i'm gonna feel i'm gonna feel that pain again Look, the, the, the context of a life really matters because certain losses can happen in the same way but hit us very differently depending on where we are in our lives, what the circumstance is, how we're feeling in general about certain things. We are more vulnerable at certain times than at other times. 
and we are more proactive and, and more you know, gung-ho about moving on at certain times than we are at other times. I, my general suggestion um, is that those who can um, adopt another animal um, should because it really helps with the pain. It truly helps with the grief. Um, it, it's something that you want and need in your life. And I don't think you should deprive yourself of it unless there's good reason, unless, well, my circumstance won't allow me to be as, you know, dedicated a pet owner as I need to be. Oh, right. But other than that, mm-hmm. um, you should. Okay. Let's move on to um, romantic heartbreak. Oh, and, f- and before we do that, talk about the science of uh, the brain uh, that that you kind of elaborate on in the book, talking about. Uh, emotional pain, heartbreak. So there are, there's a lot of neuroscience now uh, about what heartbreak uh, does to us. And most of it is in the romantic love um, area because truly romantic, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because neuroscientists are like shoving people into these functional MRI machines and having them reminisce about the, the, the woman who just broke their heart or the man that just broke their heart and looking about what happens in their brain when they do that. I don't know of any experiments that have done that about pet loss. But to me, that's just a... Ref- and maybe there are. Maybe I'm, I'm not informed of every journal out there. But, but to me, that's just another way in which we diminish the importance of uh, the attachments that we have to pets, and we should not. I have never cried for a, a person one one-thousandth of the way right. I have right. cried for Herbert, right. including my father. Right. Yeah. Well, see, that's another good example. And we're all like that, except we don't talk about it. So we just sit there with those feelings, think, well, that's an aberration on my part. But it's not. That's the whole point. But we need to make that more of a public discussion. We need to bring this out into the open about something we don't feel silly or shameful or embarrassed. But no, these are natural responses. Because they are. They're, they're truly, the grief that happens, happens. Whether we consider it legitimate or not, it's going on. So... Um, but so the neuroscience um, about heartbreak um, shows the mechanism to, to get activated in the brain. The, the number one thing um, that is relevant here is that the the emotional pain that can be caused by uh, grief, you know, for example, is profound and it mimics um, physical pain. Uh, you know, in certain ways, I wrote about that in my last book as well, emotional first aid. In terms of the brain. In terms of the brain. That the very similar structures get activated when we're experiencing emotional pain as when we experience physical pain. And we respond in very, very similar ways. When somebody like smacks into us and bumps us and it really hurts, we don't turn to them and go, ouch. We turn to them and go, what the hell? And like, you know, like we get really angry, you know. And that's the response we get um, from heartbreak as well when it's romantic heartbreak, not when the dog, like, don't get angry at the dog. But with romantic heartbreak, we get really distraught but angry and you know there's a lot that gets activated with romantic heartbreak the thing that's most interesting uh, to me at least in terms of the studies that i was reading is that there is a huge overlap in what happens in our brain when love is withdrawn and what happens when our brain when substances like cocaine and opioids are withdrawn we begin to behave like addicts in withdrawal, except we're not aware that that's what's going on. All we're aware of is an incredible compulsion to go over every text message, 
to reach out. Want to know why. To want to know why and come up with all these different theories about See what the they're why. up to on Facebook. On Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube. On, you know, we will stalk them in every possible way. Um, we become obsessed we become compulsive. We can think of nothing else. And if they make the mistake of actually responding to one of our 500 texts that we're sending them, then the sense of like, joy and relief we get you know, is significant. And then we keep reaching out and we keep trying and we keep you know, hoping. It's insatiable. It's insatiable in the same way that when you're withdrawing from opioids or cocaine or let's say opioids, because that's a more significant withdrawal, um, there is nothing else that matters to you. You need to get a fix. That is the one priority you have in life. And until you do, anyone, everything doesn't matter. And that's how we feel when we're heartbroken. So that is profound. Because when we see an addict with, you know, obviously, you know, needle marks on their arm, walking around in a daze and like obsessed with something, oh, addict. We're like that when we're heartbroken, and we don't recognize it. We don't recognize in ourselves that that's what's going on, so we rationalize it. And how we rationalize it is we come up with all these needs and these stories about why we should be stalking them on Instagram. I just want to see how they're doing. I just want to see if they're in pain yeah. as well. People will say to me, I go through all the Facebook stuff because I want to see if they're suffering too. Nobody puts their suffering on Facebook. <laughs> if they are, you won't know it from Facebook or from Instagram. Nobody posts pictures of them crying on the toilet. We don't. And, and so You haven't followed at crying on the toilet. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, it's a terrific account. <laughs> the photography is a little repetitive, but um, yeah. it uh, the the thing that I've noticed uh, about people that do the obsessive thing after they get their heart broken is they they want to know why, um, and they want to also try to control what the mutual friends think, and they can talk about nothing else with those friends and you talk about that in the book the gray area of the support system the friend of the heartbroken person can you talk about yeah. that so um the friends uh social support has been found to be an extraordinarily important thing for recovery from grief period that's pet loss that's heartbreak um, but grief especially yeah. social support super important um except that there's this interesting thing that happens our empathy uh, comes with an expiration date when it's about heartbreak, not ours. In other words, our best friend or dear friend is heartbroken. We will, oh, so sorry, and we'll be very, very supportive. In our heads, in the back of our minds, in an unconscious way, we will have a time by which we think they should be over it, roughly. Mm -hmm. And if they go past that time, there is something that happens where we will start to become impatient. We will start to become aggravated that they're still talking about it. Because in our heads, we have this assumption of, it's distressing for me to be with your distress and to support you, because I care for you, so it's hard for me to see you in distress. I will do that for you. I will be there for you with this tacit assumption that you will do what you need to heal. But if you're not healing fast enough, the, again, this unconscious assumption is that you're not doing your part. And then I start feeling resentful about having to still do my part. Here I am still being supportive, and you're not getting over it. 
and the empathy vanishes. And it's interesting because we don't have a statute of limitations when it comes to physical pain. If you're, a, God forbid, a burn victim and you're changing your bandages for a year and you're in pain, we will nod at something, I don't want to hear about it anymore. But we do when it comes to emotional pain, when it gets to the point where we think you should be over it and not for any reason other than this arbitrary thing that happens in our own head. Our empathy vanishes, our patience vanishes, we begin to be resentful, and we are starting to go like, oh, all right, you know, like it becomes an effort. Now, what we have to recognize is that our timetable is not the timetable. People get over things as they get over things. Now, might the person be stuck, and might they need to do things to work through their grief more quickly? Perhaps. But then our response should be, hey, you know what? You're on month four, and I don't think you're feeling much better than you did two months ago. I think you're feeling a little stuck. Let's talk about how you're dealing with the grief and what you can do about it. That would be helpful mm -hmm. if you're coming from a compassionate place when you say it. But usually we don't. We just feel like, oh, they're still not over it. Oh, my God. Wow, that's Look annoying. who's calling. Yeah. Look who's calling. Oh, right. fuck. And so it's a misperception on our part about how quickly somebody should or shouldn't be over it, number one. And number two, it is true in many cases, we don't know how to do the right things and we end up doing the wrong things, which actually does then extend um, our grief and our pain significantly. Is there a line, though, between someone who has a pattern of being addicted to indignation and being the victim and draining people with that and somebody who's just taking a little longer to to get through um, heartbreak. Yes, and I think that's a really interesting distinction that you draw because there are some people who um, characterologically in terms of their sense of identity, how their coping mechanisms work, they go to the victim place. They, they, there's something that feels familiar and even slightly satisfying about um, being vulnerable or being the victim or, you know, they have a perception of that, you know, life sucks in general, the world is a terrible place in general, and then there's something very validating when indeed bad things happen to you. Um, and those people can make a meal um, out of the grief. Not that they don't experience it, um, but for them there's actually something validating in staying in that place. Yes. That is different from somebody who doesn't, come across that way ordinarily who who's that isn't their life view I see. ordinarily so their previous pattern of dealing with things should maybe be taken into account correct um, in other words for some people i know in my own head i'm guilty of when somebody calls and they tell me about a breakup or even the loss of a pet for some people the thought does go through my head the latest tragedy in their life Mm -hmm. because there's always tragedies in their life. Now, there are tragedies in everyone's life. Do we present them this way? Do we think of them that way? Do we, do we you know, is that our calling card? I'm um, mm -hmm. calling because now I have something else that's terrible that happened to me. Right. Um, yeah, we should make that distinction between those people and people who are not that way ordinarily. They're usually optimistic, upbeat, uh, or deal, you know, very, very differently. They do get over things. This really hits them. Mm -hmm. And we know that because we have that thought, wow, this really hit them in a different way than I would have expected. 
And that means they're not that usually that kind of person, but they really, it's really got through to them. And I think those are the people who deserve the more compassion, mm-hmm. right? The, the thing that um, I have noticed, the, the way I can sometimes differentiate is the person who is more prone to being addicted to the victim and indignation and all of that. Generally, your interactions with them or my interactions with them is it's almost always about them. Mm-hmm. There's almost never an interest in your life right. and in really listening. You know, right. when they're listening, it's just very, oh, yeah, well, that sounds great. Now back to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Look, there are those people in my first book, The Squeaky Wheel, it's about the psychology of complaining. I have a whole chapter about chronic complainers. And um, in essence, it's, it's, it's that, right? It's, it's people whose victimhood is their primary sense of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's how they present. If they present a story of woe to you that you can actually say, oh, but actually I hear I have, a, I have advice. I have something that you can do that will help that. They almost get annoyed. Yes. But don't take away my tragedy. That's, I'm planning to be dining on that for a while now. Don't, don't right. tell me I can't. Um, and yeah, it's a very, very different vibe. And it is usually very, very focused um, on them because they truly feel their life is more tragic than yours. So you don't have the right to complain. Things go much better for you. You and as evidenced by the fact that you don't complain as much as they do. So you must have a better life. So it should be more about them. You know, there's all these justifications people have. And, and there's such a gray area, too, um, which makes it uh, so challenging sometimes to know how to honor what it is that you're feeling and not tell yourself you're a terrible person for feeling resentment at this person, but also wanting to give that person uh compassion without uh trying to fix them um to just listen you know uh, one of the things i read so often with uh people who survive sexual trauma is they're traumatized again by opening up about it to somebody who dismisses it or tries to fix them and doesn't really just listen and uh you know, to use the psychology term, hold space Mm -hmm. for them. Look, I think in general, when we're looking for social support, we have to be extremely judicious about the choices we're making because people have different capacities to listen, different capacities in terms of how validating they can be and how, like people can have empathy, but if you don't know how to verbalize the empathy, I don't know that you have it. You might be sitting there feeling so much for me but if you don't know how the words to use and all you're saying is, wow, bummer, hmm. I'm not getting that. So we, it's not about just go talk to people. Like who are the people that will really get it? Who are the people that can really um, listen well? We should always ask ourselves that, that question. Who are the people that it would be too burdensome because of what's going on in their own life? So even though I'm or sure... Or they're not emotionally know, adept. All of that. So, yeah. but, so... You know, if you're going looking for empathy, mm. looking for emotional validation, think about whether the person has it to offer. Yeah. I also think, in terms of the friendships of the people who come at you too much of the woe, some people, not all, but some of them, um, do that, but they also really think of themselves as being good friends. And for those people, when you say, look, I just want to point something out. I said a few minutes ago that I was upset about blah, blah, blah. And you kind of dismissed it. And now we're back to talking about you. And I want to feel that it can be about me as well. Mm -hmm. 
And some of them will look at you and get horribly defensive and insulted that you would even suggest that they weren't interested in you. And some of them would go, oh, you know what, I'm sorry, you're right. And because even though they are really interested in talking about them, they're also interested in being a good friend. So put it out there at least once. Yes. See what you get. I've done it three times, and it has gone well every time. Oh, the, They've wonderful. thanked me for bringing yes. it to their attention. And more importantly, now I don't feel dread and resent. Yes, uh, resentment when I see their number. But it, you have to phone. be brave to do that because a, it's it's it can feel very uncomfortable to do that to say to someone, mm-hmm. "Hey, be a better friend." Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's so important. It's really important. And what I tried to do was I tried to remember to just talk about it from uh, the point of my feelings yes. instead of saying this is a fact that you do this. I just uh, said, um, you know, I I sometimes start to feel resentful when we have conversations because I feel like I'm an audience member and I care about you and I don't want to feel resentful. I don't want to keep stuff hidden away. And I feel like as difficult as it is to say, um, it's important for me to let you know what I'm experiencing. Right. Um, And then there was one person who I said, we've been talking for 45 minutes and you have talked for 44 minutes and 30 seconds and he had no idea and he said wow i'm so sorry thank you for saying that so you know what's interesting i sometimes will sit in a session with a couple uh let's say a first session and in a first session i want to hear from each of them and one of them will give me a three minute intro and the other will go on for 12 minutes and i'll stop them at some point i'll say i I'm going to stop you because um, is this typical that you will speak for three minutes and mm-hmm. you will speak for longer? And the person who spoke for three minutes will look at me and nod and go like, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. And mm-hmm. the other person will look at me and goes, we spoke for the same amount of time. Yes. And I, because I have a clock, I will literally say three minutes, 12, and I have to stop you. And they're like, I don't think so. And I'm like, no, I'm telling you the time. So then what if that is the case? And they're literally blown away because they had no idea. No idea. It's why I will not go to a support meeting that doesn't have a timer. Mm. I just won't. It's, it's, it's too, um, one of the issues that I had in childhood was, uh, a parent who had no sense of how long they were talking for. Oh, wow. And, uh, I begin to feel all of that kind of stuffed rage because I was the captive audience member in the family who felt like I had to be there right. for them. And uh, I just have no no tolerance for it. Uh, and I'm an identical twin, so I am extraordinarily sensitive to things being equal to the second. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm hyper aware. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anything else that you'd like to touch on in the, the thing about... Um, heartbreak maybe some some uh tips or things to for people to expect um after having their heart broken so look, the, the main premise that i s- talk about in the book and i also have a ted talk um that's mm-hmm. out uh will be I'll out put a link time. Up to yeah. it on our um, show notes in which i emphasize that is that when we are heartbroken our mind is going to consistently mislead us into doing the wrong thing we literally cannot trust our instincts because they're going to be all wrong. Here's an example. Um, Our mind is going to inundate us with memories of how amazing 
the person was that we're no longer mm-hmm. with. We're going to have images in our head of all the times we were laughing and making love and enjoying each other's company. Our mind will create an extraordinarily idealized version of them and of the relationship. And all that will do is make our loss feel significantly more profound. It will make the heartbreak much uh, greater and it will make our recovery uh, much more complicated. And our mind will do that. And we'll keep thinking that they're the only one. I'll never find somebody as great mm-hmm. as them. The relationship was terrific. Now, what's useful for me as a therapist is, um, and I say this in the book, few people come to talk about heartbreak. Usually, we're talking about other things. Heartbreak happens along the way. And so I actually know that the relationship wasn't perfect. I can actually say to them, Oh, that's interesting. There was the time they made you sob like crazy and such and such. And there were the, all the times you sat here and said, we're so incompatible, I don't know what we're doing together. There was a time you lamented all the friends you can't see because they don't get along with them, etc., etc., etc. So your mind is going to inundate you with images of perfection. You can't stop your mind from doing that. What you can do and what you need to do is to introduce the other images, the images of their imperfections, all the ways they were wrong for you, um, and all of that to balance out the picture. I, I have had a conversation with somebody who was uh, heartbroken where I had to remind them that multiple times they said to me, she is the most evil person in the world. Yes. That I've, I mean, that speaks to how... I, illogical sometimes it can so be or complicated but think of the heroin right so think of the heroin of the opioids and people know oh this substance is ruining my life literally ruining my life and is the only thing i want it is it comes from that yeah. um and and so but with heroin you can't balance out something psychologically you can with heartbreak mm-hmm. so you have to be aware um, of all the ways your mind is setting you up to do the wrong thing, to feel the wrong thing, and you have to actively take steps to balance that out. And that's the thing about heartbreak. We don't know to do these things. We just go on autopilot and assume, oh, it'll get better. It won't. Unless you, or it might over time, but longer time than it would. Especially so, if you're isolating. Especially if you're isolating, but especially also if you're just indulging the whims that you have. of Oh, it's three in the morning. I know. I can't sleep. So surely going on Instagram and checking up on what my ex is doing will be the thing that will help me fall asleep. <laughs> no, it won't. And it won't help you in general. I actually wrote um, an app. Um, it's a free app. It's on my website. Um, it's called Dr. Heartbreak. It's, it's for younger people, but some... Mm-hmm. You know, uh, less younger people can enjoy it as well. But one of the things in the app is the the idealizing, you know, about how to counter these idealizing thoughts and and remind yourself of all the ways this person was wrong for you, reminding yourself of all the ways they actually made you unhappy, not to vilify them, just to balance out that picture. Yeah. Uh, Anything you'd like to uh, share in closing? Um. I don't know why I got all formal there for a second. In clo- As we approach this closing ceremonies, <laughs> Dr. Guy Winch. Uh, I, I, I will say one thing. Um, people who are heartbroken are in extraordinary pain. 
And when we are in extraordinary pain, it is very difficult to conceive that we can do something that will expedite it because it just hurts so much what is there that will bring mm -hmm. the person back, that will bring the animal back. There are steps we can and should take to make that pain um, stay less, uh, stay for a briefer amount of time, mm -hmm. to move forward, to recover more quickly and more completely. And if there are tools, you need to use them. So inform yourself of them, of, of, inform yourself of what they are. And don't just accept pain as, well, time heals all. It's a very passive approach. Mm -hmm. Time heals all. Time does. Let's add some other ingredients to that mix and make it work more expeditiously and more effectively. And that's my point about psychology in general. There are, we need to be much more active in our management of our emotional lives rather than just accepting whatever our brain and our mind throws at us to do. Yeah. And if we are more active and, and more proactive and if we intervene in our emotional lives to do the things that we know are correct and best for us, we will have better emotional lives. We'll be happier and more productive and have better lives for it. Love it. Love it. And, and uh, something I would add for the, uh, somebody who's supporting somebody who's heartbroken is have compassion for others, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. Yes. Uh, drguywinch.com. Is that it? Just Guy Winch. Just Guy Winch .com, And, uh, we'll put all the links up to your stuff, but, uh, thank you again so much for, uh, coming by and it's great to see you again it's great to see you again and i and thank you and thank you to your listeners who i i really think are wonderful they are i love talking to guy winch uh he has some great ted talks uh i'm going to put the links to all his stuff under show notes for this episode but uh yeah check his books out too uh they're they're great and uh, people people love him and love uh, his books uh as I mentioned, today's episode is sponsored by uh, Squarespace, and if you have an idea that you want to turn into a, a website, could be, you know, maybe you make uh, pottery, or you got a blog, or you sell uh, grenades. Oh, that, what a terrible example. <laughs> you sell, um, let's say you sell clown shoes. You can customize everything, tweak it to how you want it so your website does all the stuff that you need it to do, and you can do it with Squarespace. I've used it. It's super intuitive. Their templates are beautiful. It's drag and drop. Uh, you don't have to know code. It's all optimized right out of the box for mobile devices. Uh, there's nothing to install, patch, upgrade, ever. Um, if you have a question, they have a, an award-winning 24-7 customer support team. Uh, what more do you need to know? Destiny is calling. It says you need a website. Make it with Squarespace. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com, offer code MENTAL. And uh, I'll put a link up to the Squarespace site that I created uh, with pictures of dogs that uh, I obsessively took for about a year at dog parks. And uh, and also there's some music that, uh, snippets of music that I write and perform. Um, just made myself nauseous promoting, <laughs> promoting myself. Uh, so go check that out. Let's get to some surveys. 
this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Mackenzie, and she writes about her depression. Honestly, I'm only here because I don't want my dog to be confused and hurt that I never came back for him. Yeah, as I mentioned in the interview with Guy, this is, uh, we see this a lot. Uh, about her uh, eating disorder not otherwise specified. I don't fit bulimia. I don't fit anorexia. I am a mix, but nobody thinks to ask you how you are when you don't have a well-known eating disorder. And then a snapshot from her life. Aren't you hungry? 45 minutes later. Do you really need to have seconds? Thank you for sharing that, Mackenzie. Hang in there, man. You're a teenager. You are about to, uh, if you choose to, fly the coop. So hang in there. This is a happy moment filled out by it starts with an O and ends with a D in the middle. Look for a C. And uh, she writes, every time I step on a crack on the sidewalk, I have my own little victory party. That's awesome. I wonder how you got, if you did that yourself, if you decided to do that, or if you did exposure therapy with a, with a therapist. I'd be interested to know that. Um this is an awful moment filled out by that psycho girl. And uh, not many guys uh, filled out the surveys this uh, this week. Fellas, where are you? Where are you? This is uh, an awful moment, uh, as I said, filled out by that psycho girl. And she writes, I recently had to fight with myself over killing myself or not. I locked myself in my room with my roommates downstairs with three bottles of pills in my hand. I was there for 12 hours. Eventually, I decided to try and call the suicide hotline for my area because the suicidal thoughts weren't getting any better. I picked up the phone and dialed, waited, then heard an automated voice on the other end telling me that there were five people in front of me and there was a waiting time. I don't know why, but I started laughing uncontrollably. It was then that I realized I'm not alone. That might be one of the most touching awful some moments i think we've uh, we've read in a while and it's so um uh, i don't know that one just really moved me thank you for that thank you for that you know what you know what it is i like about that is you are a seeker and i love seekers you you there was a part of your heart, it seems like, that was open for finding a glimmer of positivity. And in that moment, in your darkest fucking moment, is when you reached out and you grabbed that. And those are the kind of people that I really, really love. The the survivors, you know? Uh, this is a shame and secrets survey. And uh, I mentioned a lot that Every week, uh, I go through about 10 shame and secret surveys, um, and I pick a couple to read. And there's almost always some type of little theme that reveals itself in just those 10 surveys, often that were taken in the span of two days by different people. Um, and the one from this grouping of 10 is uh, women who... Um, had non-consensual sex while in a relationship, uh, which is sadly so, so common. And this is filled out by Jane, 
and she's pansexual in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, I grew up in an abstinent-only culture, abstinence-only culture, and so the only sexual encounters I've had have been with my rapist, who was also my husband. The first time I had sex, I can't remember it outside of an out-of-body experience yelling no over and over, and crying, wondering why someone I just married was hurting me so much. I wanted so much to tell someone, to have them tell me this wasn't okay, but we moved afterwards to a different country, and that's where it just got so much worse. I would wake up with him inside of me, and I just feel so dirty about it. Like I've been divorced and away from him for four years, and I still want to die and take off my skin and throw up, and I'm just so mad. The worst part of it is that I now can't get turned on without rape, fantasy, erotica, or porn, and I feel like maybe then I deserved it because this is what I wanted. No, that is... It, first of all, that's a really common fantasy, and it has nothing to do whether, with whether or not that person wants that in um, uh, real life. Uh, in fact... A lot of uh, people who study the link between trauma and sexuality uh, will say that there is, and I'm paraphrasing, and this is something I've discovered because I've read over 10,000 of these shame and secret surveys, many of which, the majority of which, involve people talking about their uh, sexual fantasies um, and also elaborating on uh, traumas that they've had in, in childhood or adolescence. And there is a link between, uh, for many people, things that make us anxious and the things that turn us on. And it almost seems like it's it's our body's way of trying to control that thing that makes us anxious or soothe us. So, um, no, this is a real thing and this is no, this is no bearing on your morality or you know, who you are sexually, all of that. So stop judging yourself. You, more than anything right now, you need self-compassion. It's time to be nice to yourself. Um, she's been physically and emotionally abused um, uh, by her husband uh, and her parents, uh, who have both been victims of emotional and sexual abuse that they never got treatment for, and also a few friends. I mostly feel like I don't know who I am outside of that abuse. Like, how do I categorize who I am if the way I react to shit is based on abuse? Well, my thought is take advantage of the fact that you are identifying with this abuse and go to a support group so that you can connect to other people. And then you, I think, will begin to experience a side of having experienced that, that is beautiful. So it's not only the bad side of trauma. I hope that makes sense. Um, any positive experiences with the abusers? God, that's the worst part of it all, especially with my husband. I was so young when we got together. Well, 18, but it feels young. And he was older. And I thought he was so charming and just like Mr. Darcy. And even now I hate him so much, but the only romantic experience I have ever uh, had was with him. And it feels like, how can you still like someone who hurts you so much? Darkest thoughts. 
When I'm with people, sometimes I can't help but think about hurting them, like really badly, about how easy it would be to push them out of a window or how they would never expect it for me to just stab them. Or if not physically hurt them, I spend so much time constructing a script of what could hurt people the most, what I could say that would hit someone just right for them to crumble. Sometimes I want to walk home when it's dark in fucked up places because I really want to be touched by someone else and that maybe if I'm hurt again, I'll be able to have something that people would believe to point to. That is heartbreaking that you have not experienced the comfort of somebody that believes you. Um, You so deserve that. And uh, I can tell you every person... Uh, if I may speak for them, listening to this right now believes you. And um, sending you some love. Darkest Secrets. I send audio messages to doms online telling them to hurt me, even though after each time I do it, I have a panic attack and can't breathe, but I still do it. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, nine years old, and my brother was four, I had him in dress, undress in front of my friends so we could see what a penis looks like. I forgot this happened until about a year ago and I haven't ever brought it up to him because I'm so afraid of the harm I would cause him by reminding him and also I'm disgusted at myself for doing such a horrible thing. Um, Let me just remind you that you were a child and this is a time for you to be compassionate to yourself. Um, But, um, you know, maybe bring it up with him. Um, I, I can't, I'm not a therapist, but I can't imagine how it could hurt. Um, you know, to, to me, if he, if he's experiencing pain, uh, around it, um, what would hurt would be him bringing it up to you and you minimizing it or denying his experience or anything else. So, um, I don't know, just, just my thoughts. Um, even though my husband used to beat me only a couple of times, boy, look at that phrase, only a couple of times. It's amazing. It's amazing what we tell ourselves to minimize our pain. The way I was able to convince my family to let me leave him was when he strangled me, but he did that after I egged him on in a fight knowing he would probably hit me because I wanted to be able to leave him. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Uh, Most powerful are rape fantasies, but specifically incestuous ones. I also really like watching men fuck. It feels like this is going to be traced to me and I'm going to be exposed for being a horrible, disgusting person. You are not a horrible, disgusting person at all. You sound like a really beautiful, sensitive soul who um, was dealt a really difficult hand and didn't have the tools uh, yet to cope with a situation that was fucking baffling and overwhelming. And um, and I think a support network will really help you find some self-love and, uh, and start to heal. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would really like to tell my husband's parents what he did. I want to tell them in full detail how their son tortured me and destroyed everything good about me. 
And then I want to ask them if me leaving him still made God hate me. That is heavy. That is heavy. I can't imagine how angry you must feel. I can't imagine. You know, that that second wound of being shamed by people who have no fucking idea what the truth is. Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for forgiveness from others, from myself, and I really wish I could still love people without part of me wanting to hurt them. Well, how could... How could part of you not have anger, suppressed anger? You know, suppressed anger is never pretty. (laughs) Show me, show me dignified, beautiful, graceful, suppressed anger. It doesn't exist that, that I know of. It comes out in, you know, us exploding at the bus driver or nitpicking at a loved one or, you know, drinking ourselves to fucking death. Um, Have you shared these things with others? Yes and no. Some of them I've shared with my therapist or my sister. I'm too ashamed to share most with my therapist and my sister has her own trauma. I don't need to add my own to her. Um, First of all, I encourage you to share all of this with your therapist and A possibility is that if you share this with your sister, it might be an opportunity for you to become even closer, the two of you, because you will both perhaps feel less alone and you'll have somebody that you know understands you and vice versa, um, which is essentially what is so beautiful about support groups. So just my two cents. Uh, I tried sharing a bit on the sexual fantasies with one, one of my friends, and she was really nice and considerate about it, but now I feel like I can't ever fight or disagree with her because she has information she can lord over me. Um, first of all, if she did that, she would not be a friend, and fuck what anybody thinks uh, about whatever somebody gets off on thinking about. Um but I understand that that anxiety. Um, you know, if somebody were, let's say worst case scenario, somebody comes up to you and says, um, so-and-so told me that you uh, get off on uh, thinking about uh, rape fantasies uh, or incestuous rape fantasies or watching men fuck. Um, you're a horrible, disgusting person. Uh what I would say to them is, um, so something I think about in my mind that doesn't harm anybody in reality is worse than going out of your way to shame somebody about something that they have no control over and then just walk away. Actually, always have a mic with you so that after you say that, you can drop the mic and then walk away. And maybe even hire hire a couple of uh, friends to always be around you so that when that happens, uh, one of them can go, oh, no, she didn't. All right. 
How do you feel after writing these things down? My body feels cold and hot and I feel nauseous and like I'm on the brink of dissociating but still can feel some parts of my body. Um, and she would like to hear more uh, from people with dissociative identity disorder. If you haven't listened to the uh, episode with Melanie, uh, Melanie R., listen to that. Uh, it's a great episode about uh, DID. But uh, Jane, I just want to thank you for um, your survey. It's really moving and you really poured your heart out and you are clearly a sensitive soul and you deserve love and to feel safe in the world and i have the feeling if you keep seeking um and keep getting help i i have the feeling you will this is an awful moment filled out by eddie spaghetti and uh he writes my dad was obsessed with plastic containers anything that could hold something anyway he was dying from emphysema and had long given up smoking but loved nicorette so when I was cleaning out his apartment after he passed away, I found four 13-gallon garbage cans filled with empty Nicorette containers that he had amassed over the years. As I was taking them out to the garbage can at his apartment, I tripped and knocked roughly 2,000 Nicorette bottles all around the garbage can area. It was like a sea of little blue bottles sprayed everywhere. I was exhausted and emotional as it was, but there was something about the way the sunset shimmered across the sea of blue bottles that left me in hysterics for about 10 minutes. Thank you for that, Eddie. That, oh, I love moments like that when it's, the anger just turns into ridiculous laughter. That That is just like a gift from the universe in those moments. And what a picture you paint too. <laughs> A sea of shimmering blue Nicorette bottles. Oh, my God. And what if each one had a tiny little SOS message from a smoker trapped on a desert island? Bring me a lighter. That's what they all said. Send help and a lighter. Uh, this is filled out by Heron. This is a shame and secret survey. And... She's straight in her 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment, uh, was the victim of uh, sexual abuse, and once she reported it, and once she never reported it. Uh, I was raped by an actor in a movie that was shooting in my town when I was 14. I met him through a friend whose parents were housing a bunch of the actors during the shoot. I was smitten with him because he was very exotic and very good-looking. One night, I wound up in a hotel with him and some other friends. He took off all my clothes and started kissing and touching me. Then he took off his clothes and started trying to have sex with me. I said that I didn't want to do that, but he kept pushing, literally. I started crying because I realized how stupid I was for getting myself into that situation and because it hurt. He kept pushing even though I was crying. He finally stopped because I was starting to cry louder and he didn't want everyone else to hear. I said I had to go to the bathroom and saw blood on the sheets and all over my legs. That's how I lost my virginity. Um, and I just realized the the um, theme actually was um, people losing their uh, virginity um, uh, in a coercive manner. 
thought it was um, the other thing. <laughs> My brain, man. My brain, even though I had a big, strong cup of tea, it is, uh, it's not all there. Any positive experiences with uh, people who have abused you? At the time, I felt a profound combination of extreme guilt, terror at the possibility of being pregnant, and pride that a good-looking actor like him would choose me. When I tell people about that moment, now that I'm in my 40s, it feels like bragging because they think it's cool I lost my virginity to a Mohican. I guess it is bragging, actually. I do feel weird about that. Darkest thoughts. It's not very often, but when I am in the throes of self-loathing, I imagine myself being impaled very slowly on huge spikes through my torso. There's always a lot of blood and pain. Darkest secrets. When I was manic, I almost drilled a hole in my head because I thought that was the equivalent of taking, quote, the red pill from the Matrix. I thought I would be Neo if I drilled a hole through my head. Wow. That is intense. That is, um, that is some intense mania. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Hmm, this one is hard to answer. I have a lot of weird sexual fantasies. Rape, alien, robots, incest. Uh, sharing that makes me feel exposed. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to say to my cats that I'm sorry for abandoning them to animal control. It's the worst thing I have ever done in my life, and I will always regret it. What, if anything, do you wish for? A fully self-expressed life. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, oh, there's one more page. Sorry. Um, have you shared these things with others? I have shared them with some people. My secrets about rape and abuse don't bother me as much as my secret about abandoning my cats. I've only told one other or two other people about that. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little lightheaded. Thank you for sharing all that. And, um, being hard on yourself yeah listen to me for the rest of your life about that is not going to take the pain away um, so why not experiment with forgiving yourself and see where that leads just try it just try it this is a happy moment filled out by Sazer's and uh, she writes, I read a journal entry from when I was in an emotionally abusive relationship. Oh, that's what made me think about this, the other one. Uh, I talked about how alone and anxious I felt with him, but desperately wanted him to love me and be with him. I literally said my world will crumble and fail without him, and I will feel so alone. I spoke about how I don't have a group of friends that care. I mentioned I couldn't even stay home during the day with my own anxious thoughts because it would destroy me. All I wanted to do was live my life, but all I could feel was jealousy, self-doubt, loneliness, and stress, uh, stress that I would end up alone. Two years later, I've been single and seeing a therapist. This is the best I've been in my life, and I cannot thank therapy enough. It's been a long journey and not easy to get where I am now, though it's not perfect and I feel anxious and depressed from time to time. It's a breath of fresh air to what my life used to be like with him, the whole relationship was is 
if I was holding my breath and sinking to the bottom with weights on my shoulders. I never thought I'd believe in myself as much as I do now, yet here I am, living in shit without that narcissistic bastard. I'm pretty fucking proud of myself. High five, man. High fucking five. Love reading that. Uh, 40s therapist has something that he would like to add. What? I just want to say... Now, way to go, doll face. You don't want a fella to yell a business. You give him the business. That's it? You betcha. Put out your cigar. Uh, this was filled out by Worry Repeat, and uh, he writes about his, uh, gives us a snapshot of his anxiety, and he writes, Things are okay, but what if I lose my job and can't pay the bills? and lose the house, and screw up my daughter's life, and everyone thinks I'm a loser, and I have to get rid of all my stuff, and, 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 and. Thank you for that. Oh my God, the catastrophizing dominoes. Yeah, my brain does that too. In fact, I, uh, after I read your, your uh, survey, I thought, like almost every moment in my day there's a flash of a part of my brain that goes to the worst case scenario of something even if it's just an image um but sometimes it'll go the full dominoes route um where this leads to that to that leads to that and it gets worse and worse and worse and um so I went on, on, uh, online to a website that uh, generates random words, and I just observed my brain as it flashed on whatever negative thing it leaps to on its own. Like the word basket came up, and my first, first thing that flashed in my head was the reeds are sharp, and my finger cuts, and I get that flesh-eating virus. That would be a fun thing to do on the podcast is just do the random word generator and and just go into a worst-case scenario moments. Uh, this is from the uh, babysitter survey, and this was filled out by Marilyn. And she uh, writes, When I was six years old, I was molested by my very Mormon female 30-something-year-old babysitter. She would crawl into my bed in the early hours of the morning after my parents would leave for work and fondle my feet and touch me. Afterwards, as I laid in bed, I would listen to her sob in the shower. Boy, that is such an image. That is such an image. You know, when I read this, I thought, if that doesn't speak to the power of compulsive behavior, that the war that this person, this abuser, clearly felt but couldn't stop herself or chose not to stop herself from doing what she did. Um, For many years, I kept it to myself. I tried to tell my mother twice but could not. I told an ex-friend, and it remains one of my biggest regrets that I shared that with her. 
This is something I wish I could tell people, but only the right people. I wish I knew who those people were. You are not alone in that because I have shared things with people that in hindsight um, were not ideal, but I think for a lot of us, we have to share things sometimes with people who don't react ideally to find people who will react in a way that is compassionate. And I don't know how to describe it exactly because a lot of times it's just a feeling you get with somebody. Um, I guess all of this is to say is the more we share and open up, the better we get at intuitively knowing who is safe to share things with. Um, But ultimately, you're speaking your truth and fuck anybody that judges you for it. I don't give a fuck about anybody that judges me for my truth. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? I am angry while also being full of regret, sadness, and shame. Regret because the reason why she quit being my babysitter was because she married a man with a daughter my age. I think of that girl and hope she never had to go through what I did. Anger because the statue of limitations is up and that nobody in my family can remember her last name. Otherwise, I feel like I would find her and confront her. Sadness and shame because this happened. This is my life, and I live with that. I cry as I type this. Do you feel any damage was done? I feel like there is a part of me I'll never get back. For years, in my teens, after I came to terms with what happened, I would mutilate the skin on the bottoms of my feet to the point where it hurt to walk and my feet would bleed. My soul is hurt. I cannot stand anyone else touching my feet or even seeing them, so I wear socks 24-7. If you are a parent, has your experience influenced how you view your children being babysat? I will never allow my children to be babysat by anyone other than close family. I will be a stay-at-home mom because I cannot bear the thought of something like this happening to my child. Thank you. Wow, that is so heavy. That is so heavy. Sending you some love, man. That, that... God, the image of you hearing her cry in the shower... And then the things that you were doing to your to your feet to try to cope with your pain. And um mm. Thank you for sharing that. And the image of you crying as you type that out. Man the the depths you guys go to in sharing 
your inner lives through the surveys can't be overestimated in how important they are, not only to the podcast, but to me personally. Um, This is a happy moment filled out by Kenzie Samantha, and uh, she writes, I woke up to the soft rain. It was 9 a.m., but I couldn't tell because the sky was dark. I was home alone. I put on my favorite slippers and went downstairs to make some tea. My dog greeted me with a thumping tail and his favorite yellow toy. I drank my tea, finished a book, and petted my dog. In that moment, the world was a perfect place, and my mind was at peace. Thank you for that, Kenzie. That, you know, that honestly, those are, that's the goal for me every day is to, is to find joy in the little things. Because the little things are, are like, first of all, the bulk of what life is. And if I can find joy in those little things, it helps to navigate the bigger things. And I don't know how to explain that exactly because half of my brain is missing right now because I think I took the wrong dose. Sometimes I just like silence. I don't think we have enough silence in our in our lives. Some of the calmest I've ever felt was when I was in nature above the tree line in the mountains in the winter and there was no wind and there was no animal life because it was too high up. And it was it was almost like life changing. It was such a, I, I like felt my body shifted and um, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is the, the, the small moments are an opportunity to wind down and because I can't appreciate small moments if I'm wound up, if I'm anxious, if I'm future tripping, if I'm stuck in the past. But when I can appreciate those little moments, I can get calm enough. So so I guess that's why meditation works. It helps you wind down. And then it helps you enjoy the, the smaller shit. I want that on my gravestone. That's a long fucking phrase to put on a headstone. Why am I swearing all of a sudden? You know why? Because I'm a little insecure the way I'm ending the show. Thinking it could have been better. But then again... You're going to judge me for that? Fuck you. Fuck you. Listening to my podcast and judging me. (laughs) I have nowhere to go with this. Let me see if 40s therapist wants to wrap the show up. You want to chime in anything, buddy? Oh, I'm so steaming. I could punch you in the bread basket.
let, let me let me bid you guys adieu. If you're out there and you're stuck, help is out there. People who understand you are out there. It's just a matter of finding them. And sometimes it's frustrating as fuck, and it's rarely on our schedule. But if you keep seeking, you will eventually find people who understand you, who love you unconditionally, and who will help you, and who you will feel comfortable being your authentic self around. And I know that because I've experienced it, and I've seen hundreds and hundreds of my friends experience it. And I know you're having a hard time believing I have friends. Put that aside. And you know what? Go fuck yourself. Not believing that I have friends. All right, this is, I'm going down a rabbit hole. Just remember, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.